This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Whistler Blackcomb, leaders in delivering adventure. Uh, one of them gets struck in the shoulder with a rock. It wasn't a huge one. It certainly could have been a huge one, but it wasn't a huge one. It left a bruise and it certainly left an impression on everybody in the group. And at this point, I've also closed all the doors for retreat. So we, like the safest thing now is gonna be to finish and take, you know, go over the summit and come down. And so I painted myself into a corner. Welcome to Delivering Adventure. This is the podcast that explores what it really takes to share adventure like a pro with your friends, your family, and as a profession. My name is Chris Capio, and I'm coming to you from Whistler, British Columbia. And I'm Jordy Shepard, recording from Canmore, Alberta. After a lifetime of working extensively in different parts of the adventure guiding industry, Chris and I have teamed up to launch this podcast. In each episode, you will hear top adventure guides, managers, marketers, and athletes share their best stories, advice, and trade secrets. The goal of this podcast is to share how you can take yourself and others farther from the mountains to the office and beyond. One of the reasons why making good decisions can be so hard has to do with what is referred to as human factors. These are the internal and external factors that can affect our decision-making. Sometimes they are helpful, for example, personal preference can steer us in the right direction if our preferences line up with what is needed. Other times, these factors negatively impact our judgment. An example is being too cautious because we had a bad experience in a similar situation before. When it comes to mountain sports, what we usually require to perform well is an assertive mindset, as Lindsay Dyer outlined in episode two of season one. This is where a negative experience in a similar situation can cause us to become too passive, which can compromise our performance, which could actually put us at greater risk. Another one is where we ignore information because it doesn't line up with what we want to do. This is referred to as confirmation bias. Jordy, an example of confirmation bias that I see regularly is an instructor or a guide who wants to take their clients to harder terrain or put them in a more complex situation so that they can help them to achieve what I call a trophy experience. This in itself might not be a bad thing. However, if the instructor or guide is ignoring the fact that their clients haven't been performing as well as the afternoon has gone by, they may be missing information that should be telling them that their clients are getting tired. In this case, exposing them to a more complex situation that has more risk may not be in their best interests. Joining us to explore some of the more common human factors that can affect our judgment is Mike Adolph. Mike Adolph is an ACMG IFMGA mountain guide and the current technical director of the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides. In addition to guiding custom outdoor adventures for small groups, Mike also works as a guide trainer and examiner for the ACMG's training and assessment program. Mike started in the outdoor industry in 1994 after his family, in a joint venture, opened the Sheeling Mountain Lodge and the Center for Outdoor Education in Nordegg, Alberta. He completed his final ACMG exam and received his International Federation of Mountain Guides Association 
Mountain Guide designation in 2009. He always admired his instructors and examiners, even if they were a bit harsh at times, which led to him getting involved with the instructor-examiner team in 2012. When the job posting for the interim ACMG technical director came up in 2018, he thought, why not? The mountains have taught him to be open to all possibilities, have several options, and go with the flow. Mike feels lucky to have this as a career and is extremely grateful to his loving and understanding wife, Jennifer, and their two boys, Lucas and Tyler. So Mike, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Jordy. Uh, thanks for the invite to uh, come and participate. I'm looking forward to it. So we'll get right into it here. Tell us about your path into the adventure industry. How did you get to where you are? Uh, you know, it's a great question, um, and it's one that I actually enjoy uh, kind of providing the answer to because it's a bit unique, I think. Um, our family, uh, you know, we're active in the outdoors from an early age. We had the cabin. We get to hang out there on the weekends and do some water skiing and stuff. And my sister was involved in Girl Guides and eventually Pathfinders, and my mom was a leader uh, you know, helping support the girls. And eventually they progressed beyond doing camping trips to, you know, trying to do something fun and exciting. And uh, my mom had the idea that she wanted to take her group rock climbing. And of course, there was a huge barrier to getting a, a group of pathfinders out rock climbing, all this legality stuff that they had to work through. But they persevered. And a year later, um, the group found themselves out rock climbing in, uh, in Hinton. Um, I got the story back, you know, from my sister at the end of the weekend saying how great it was. And that kind of sparked my interest. And, you know, a year later, I would actually get the opportunity to go and try it. And walked away from the experience thinking, wow, like, this is pretty cool. Both my parents saw the interest in myself and my sister and actually had an opportunity to start a new business with one of the guides that we had hired. And so Two years down the road, um, we started the Center for Outdoor Ed out in Nordegg, and I would start kind of doing my mentorship, uh, working into the uh, outdoor industry from there, kind of starting in 95. And then quite quickly realized that, you know, there's more to the, to the training than what I was being given there and started looking at uh, the ACMG as, you know, the next, or not the next, but the kind of gold standard here in Canada. And you know, kind of worked through what I needed to uh, to do as far as putting a resume together, got it all together and, you know, very nervously submitted my application to uh, Thompson Rivers University at the time or College of the Caribou and got accepted into the Apprentice Rock Guide program. And it's been uphill from there. Yeah, I, I recall, I think it might have even been when you and I first met, I was working with Visitor Safety in Jasper and I think you came out to do some snow science stuff with us there mm -hmm. and uh yeah you were getting into the program and as as i was in the program as well yeah 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 uh, parks uh, visitor safety from jasper was really great i mean i had a couple of practicum opportunities there you know persisting trying to get out and do as much as you can so we're talking about human factors and judgment today so do you have an example of a time when a decision you made either got you into a bit of trouble or or could have gotten you into trouble in terms of decision-making, human, uh, human error and judgment? 
I think, you know, the one that uh, I think comes to mind um, in, in recent years was uh, a trip up Mount Athabasca. And I had uh, two clients. Um, they're, they're friends of mine. Uh, they, they live in Nordegg. We have done a bunch of stuff together over the years. Uh, and they had wanted to start, you know, getting into summer mountaineering and uh, tackling some, you know, more complex objectives. And we built into the, the trip. So we had done some crevasse rescue training. We did some snow training, some ice training. Everybody's feeling really good about uh, heading out and, and, you know, tackling the summit. And, you know, for a lot of people, it's, if it's their first climb on something like Mount Athabasca, like the normal route or the ramp route um, might be an option, though I guess that's quickly changing these days. But certainly the AA call or there's, there's really, you know, very um not simple but uh less com i don't know what the best word is less complex objectives more straightforward that, uh, you could tackle or more straightforward routes to get to the summit um but because we had done this training we'd done some ice climbing together i kind of was had it in my head that the north face bypass would be a great route and it is i mean it, it really embodies all types of alpine climbing you get to do glacier travel you're climbing on snow, you're climbing on ice, you're climbing on rock. And I felt like they had the skills. I was certain that they had the skills. Um, you know, we had the weather and uh, that kind of became my plan A. And as we were uh, heading out, the, you know, the morning of, kind of checking all the boxes. So starting super early, um, we're getting up uh, further on the glacier and we get to the the part of the mountain where um, you're crossing underneath the route called the Silverhorn. And you can now, you can kind of see into the North Bowl, you can see the, the North Face Bypass in its entirety. And you really kind of have to make a choice there. So either continue on to the North Face Bypass, or you can hang a right and climb the Silverhorn, or you can retreat and maybe uh, think about climbing the ramp route. And we pulled into the bowl and I looked and you know it was fairly cool. But uh, a lot of snow had melted, so there's uh, quite a bit of rock exposed. And you could see evidence of rock um, kind of peppered on the slopes below the North Face Bypass. And I kind of stopped and thought, yeah, things are dry, but, you know, we had a really good freeze last night. Things are cold right now. We'll be able to move fairly quickly through that section. We're going to go for it. And I think at that point... Um, you know, if I would have asked the, the two clients what they wanted to do, they were happy just being there. And so my own motivation to provide this, you know, awesome experience for them really clouded my overall judgment. And so anyways, we continue along uh, across the Bergschrund. We're moving up into the uh, upper part of the bypass. And I know I have to move quickly because this is the one part of the route where the rockfall will be the highest. And we get to the kind of the last pitch before I can pull off into more protected terrain. And sure enough, there's a rock fall event. And so we all duck into the ice and, you know, do everything that we can to manage it. But, you know, uh, one of them gets struck in the shoulder with a rock. It wasn't a huge one. It certainly could have been a huge one, but it wasn't a huge one. It, it left a bruise and it certainly left an impression on everybody in the group. And at this point, I've also closed all the doors for retreat. So we like the safest thing now is going to be to finish and take, you know, go over the summit and come down because if things are heating up, if rocks are starting to move, 
then the last thing we want to do is rappel down. And so I painted myself into a corner. So we continue up to the top. We don't have any other uh, incidents with rockfall or anything like that. Um, you know, enjoy a lovely 15 minutes on the summit and continue down the descent and everything's all good. And uh, we get to the car at the end of it. I'm like, how was that? And uh, they thought, oh, this is, that was super great. Um, you know, what, what are some of the other routes that we could have done? And so I started listing all the options. Uh, you know, we pointed at the Silverhorn. They're like, well, why didn't we climb the Silverhorn? And I'm like, well, because I thought that you wanted to, you know, have this really cool Alpine experience. And this is what it was for me. And so my motivational bias, you know, the continuation bias, because once I got going, I had to actually push through. There was no turning around. All could have been negated if we would have just had a discussion the night before and said, these are the options. This is what um, I think would be a plan A. If we get there and we see this, then we'll do plan B or plan C. And I think having had that discussion, I mean, we did talk about it a little bit, but having a more in-depth discussion, I think it would have been really easy at the point when we rolled into the North Pole, saw the, the pepper, the rocks littering the lower slope, just said, you know what? It looks like there's a bit more rockfall activity than I'd like let's just hang a right here. We'll climb the silver horn. It'll be just as you know, good of a day, if not better, because we won't have that rockfall incident. We wouldn't have had the rockfall incident. Yeah. And in those drier conditions, um, it's different if it's really snowy there as, as mm -hmm. we know as mountaineers and, and guides there. And so maybe the silver horn is like, no, that's too spicy because there's, there's potential for, for slab avalanches and and uh, which there have been a number of incidents there over the years and and maybe the north face bypass is actually you know it's looking less snow covered and it's actually better so yeah it, it just really depends on conditions of the given day too yeah i totally agree so when we're when people so so i'll, I'll start with this why is it so hard for us to make good decisions then you know this this idea of you know human factors and why why is it so hard for us as human beings to do a, a good job of making decisions and reliably and consistently and we see this in the aviation industry right all the training and and simulations that go into that industry right and we we often compare the guiding and instructional world to the aviation industry and the number of decisions that are coming at you and how you make those decisions and yeah what what are your thoughts on that in terms of decision making and how can we be good at it well we're, we're very complex beings and uh, everybody's different everybody's has different uh, motivations um, or and backgrounds that they're coming from that are driving those motivations uh, we all have our quirks or biases that affect our ability to make decisions and when we're out in the mountains or we're out recreating with a group if we don't have a great understanding and if there's been no prior discussion, um, you know, before heading out, those biases rear their ugly heads and steer the decision making way off course. And I think a lot of the times um, when people have had near misses or accidents in the mountains, they can take a step back at the end of it and said, well, you know, I, I should have seen that coming. Like now that I now that I'm actually out of the environment looking back on all of the uh, events that led up to it, I should have seen it coming, but it was the biases that created this blind spot for them. And at the time in the moment, 
they probably felt like they were making an appropriate decision and not seeing that that things were actually compounding and i think that's where that's where things can really go awry is just realizing that one you know we try to make as good of decisions as we can all the time but when we make a bad decision it's easier to make another bad decision and it's easier to make another bad decision and then like me all of a sudden you're painted into a corner where there's no real good decision anymore you kind of you've eliminated all those options yeah, and then there's the pendulum swing that we can see happen too, where somebody has, you know, through their decision making, uh, a bit of a negative experience, and then the next time they go out, they go so far to the cautious side of things that they actually don't get anywhere. They they choose to just not go and do it, even though, you know, if they actually didn't have that other bad experience, they would probably be saying, yeah, this would be fine to do. But it's it's just affected them so so far to to the pendulum swing side, back the other direction. Yeah, yeah, and it's really easy to recall um, a negative experience, right, or something that has, uh, you know, had you in the mountains and had a near miss. That that really just quickly flashes back into your mind, and and that in itself is a bias, right? It creates this, you know, the, the availability to be able to recall that very tangible memory. Um, and how it impacted you all of a sudden your your knee-jerk reaction or like you say jordy the pendulum swing is to just do something so overly cautious that you're not you're not really going to get anywhere you're not meeting maybe what the the goal might have been for the day and i think that's where you know at the start or at the uh the onset you're taking a bit of time to just ask yourself or ask the group like what are we actually trying to do here what's the goal and is it to be out in the mountains? That's a really good goal. Is it to do a little bit of technical climbing while you're out in the mountains? Or is it to go and do some skiing? Those are really good goals. As soon as the goal is we are doing this route and we're going to get to this summit, that's when all the doors really start closing. And, you know, we have a, a much more narrow uh, field of vision. And also our thought process is entirely focused on achieving that. And it just creates these blind spots where bias can come in and, and impact the day. Yeah. And your, your example there, I think was excellent because at a certain point you, I guess you would have had one way out. Cause it sounds like the weather was okay that day. Pretty good. Flyable. Uh, you, you, yeah. you had communications out, I assume, and you probably could have called for mm-hmm. rescue if you needed it, but you didn't. Um, but it had, you felt like we can't go down, we can't go up or they, they can't physically go up. This person is too injured, uh, if that had been yeah. the case. But we can't go down. Well, then, yeah, it, call for rescue. But you, you fortunately didn't need to do that. But it's not, um, it's not a sign of weakness if you actually do need to call out for help. It's, it's a sign of professionalism. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Recognizing that, uh, you know, you're down to the one last option and that's just to, to get yourself out of there. So when people talk about human factors and decision-making, uh, yeah. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? What, what you feel we're actually talking about in, in terms, in terms of those terms? Uh, so I think, you know, if we just maybe pick a couple of, of human factors, um, you know, that I'm kind of familiar with, you know, like familiarity, with terrain, um, you know, creates uh, a gap in your, or creates a weakness in your decision-making process because you've been there before. 
and maybe you might be a bit blind to how conditions are changing or how things are different than they have been before. There's the uh, the desire um, to be accepted within a group if you're uh, you know if you're out recreating with a bunch of friends and maybe there's some new people in the group. Those newer individuals to that group might be experience a bit of pressure, social pressure, to actually fit in. And even though their decision-making process is prompting them to maybe take one course of action, they're not going to say anything because they want to fit in with the group. And they're worried that, you know, if, if they do say something or cause something to turn around, that that group's going to look down on them and they're not going to be invited to participate again. You know, when we're traveling in groups where, you know, one person maybe as the de facto expert, um, you know, or has the most experience in that group, that can create a little bit of a, of a, a bias, right? It creates a, what we call an expert halo where everybody else in that group is just looking to that person to kind of have that final say in, uh, in the decision-making process. You know, those are a few of them. Um, and I guess another one that comes to mind, you know, the, uh, especially in the ski world is when we're out into the mountains, we're, we're ski touring, we're trying to find really good snow. Um, it might be that, you know, it's been dry for a couple of weeks and, and everything's got tracks in it. And, you're looking at that and it's like, well, that's not what I signed up for. I, I'm, I'm motivated to be here in the mountains. I want to ski a, a fresh powder line. And so you're actually considering terrain that you have never even really thought you would be considering in the first place because everything else is tracked out there. So you, the scarcity kind of plays a role. I think those are some, some ones that come to mind off the, off the top of my head. Yeah, that's a really good um, list. It's interesting. There's a, there's a few that I find that, uh, I can suffer from, and I can see this in some of my colleagues as well. Planning fallacy is one that I really have to be aware of. And that is when you underestimate how long something's going to take. So somebody asks you, well, how long is it going to take us to get to the bottom of the run or the bottom of the trail? And you're thinking in terms of, well, the last time I did it, I was moving a lot faster. And so it's going to take 30 minutes. And then you forget that, oh, by the way, you're going with people that are either slower uh, than you or less fit, less skilled, or the conditions have changed and all of a sudden this takes a lot longer. Um, another one that I tend to find with people is that status quo bias because people are generally um, resistant to doing things in a different way. I had a colleague um, asking me in the morning you know, what the weather was gonna be like and we started to go through the options. He was teaching skiing and I, uh, I said, well, hey, you could go over to the bottom of Blackcomb and ski with your beginner guests at the beginner area there. And then you're close to the lodge and it's a really cold day. So you could go warm up. And it was probably minus 18. So it was, it was cold for the coast. And he said, yeah, but I'm used to going up to the beginner area on Whistler. Well, there's no warming area there. And sure enough, he went back to the area on Whistler, just because that's what he always does. And it can be really hard for us to break out of that, to go and do something a different way once we get um, once we get set in. And then there's the other one that I, I love is that anchoring bias. And I suffered from this the other day. I said to somebody, they said, well, we're going to go for a walk. And I said, well, what's the temperature going to be? Well, it's going to be five degrees. So then we get on the walk and they're like, I thought you said it was going to be five degrees. And I said, yeah, it's going to be five degrees but it's not five degrees right now, it's zero. But 
when we throw out a number or an idea, we can grab onto that and then and then excuse our decision making for everything else. And so as soon as I said, well, it's going to be five degrees, that put it in in this person's mind that, oh, it's going to be five. I'm going to dress for five degrees. And of course, it's going to be five degrees in four hours. So that is one that can can kind of throw us off, I find. Do you think um do you think there's any other bias factors out there that people might be less familiar with? Like we always think about the motivation and and um, the expert halo and things like that. But is there any find that you find that people might be less familiar with that they might suffer from? Uh, you know, confirmation bias would be one that jumps out. So, you know, that's kind of you're you're heading into terrain where you know there's going to be some tricky decision points that you're you're going to make. And when you're looking around trying to, you know, gather information, you know, assess kind of what's going on, you're being really selective with the information that you're looking at. You only, you're only kind of focusing on the, uh, the information that's actually going to support the decision that you want to be made or support the decision to kind of continue on with the trip. So I think that's one that can really catch people um, by surprise. The, uh, I talked earlier too about, um, the availability bias, right? So, you know, the first thing that kind of jumps to your mind, are the memories that are easy to recall. And I think you know, Jordy's example, uh, where it kind of swings the other way. So you're, you're thinking of like a near miss that happened and you get back into that terrain and that's the thing that flashes into your mind and, and it kind of steers the direction in, in a more conservative fashion than maybe what's required. Is that a bad thing? You know, probably not. I mean, you're staying safe, but is that still a good decision? Well, it certainly had some bias influencing it. So how do you kind of find a balance uh, to kind of work with that? Because it's important information. It's it's giving you cues to help make your decisions and help you stay safe. But how do you avoid um, letting it take you so far off course that it, it feels more like a pendulum swing as, as opposed to you know, tempering the, the decision that you need to make in the terrain at the time? You make a really good point there. Not every bias creates a problem or is a problem. Like personal preference is a great example. You may prefer going to one place or doing something a certain way. And the reason you believe that is because it it is in fact the best way to do it or the best place to go or the best route to take. So even though you might be a little bit set in your ways, that isn't necessarily a negative. And so when we talk about biases and the human factors, it's generally when it when it does become that negative drag on our decision-making and, and steers us off into the position where we're sort of discounting information and options that are the better options for us to, to make. Now, as you've gone through your career, are there some bias factors or human factors that you have found that have affected you more often and how have you dealt with that you know probably the the biggest one i, I just think about working in the winter time um I, I do a little bit of work uh ski touring moving through avalanche train trying to find good snow i also work in a mechanized uh, setting um, heli skiing and occasionally cat skiing and i think there um you really have to be careful of that confirmation bias um, and anchoring bias too, right? Uh, you know, a classic example, you're having a, a look in the snow, you're, you're doing a little test profile and you're getting a chunk of information from, you know, one piece of terrain and then trying to apply that 
to the decision making that you're going to make in a much larger piece of terrain. And if you get a good result, you know, you, you have this tendency to feel like things are really good. And obviously, if it's the opposite, if you have a bad result, well, then you kind of have a tendency to think that maybe things aren't, you know, quite as stable as you'd like. And if you've only done that investigation once, you're trying to base the entire day's decision off of a small chunk of information. And of course, maybe what you're seeing in the terrain around you. So I think you have to be really careful with that. And in the anchoring sense, you know, if, if that's all that you're taking into account, um, you really need to kind of broaden your view and, and, and think more about what you're actually seeing in the mountains. You know, can you, can you sample information or can you get information from, from different aspects, you know, speaking in the skiing context, different elevations, uh, looking at, you know, things that have maybe occurred in the past in that terrain, can you expect to have, you know, similar results in the future and really bringing that all together. So you have a, a good mix, um, of infra, sorry, of information that can uh, support your decisions. I think one that you taught, you spoke about Chris there that we should visit a little bit further here is the, the timing thing and the, how much time it can take longer than you expect it to and and why that's a problem and it's a problem because you think okay well we're just going to scoot underneath this cornice or or through this uh, area you know that's threatened by seracs or something like that or across a, a glacier and that is when somebody that you don't expect is going to fall they fall right and now they're you know they're skiing and now not only are they taking time picking themselves up Maybe they're not even on their skis anymore. They're not moving. And now you're worried about the crevasses that potentially are lurking underneath them. And they're spending time in that area. And then somebody else goes over to help them. And now you got two people there doing that same thing in that same area and just more exposure time. And it's we, yeah. we often say, okay, we're going to move quickly through this. I, I've said that so many times as a guide. And it's like, you know what? We didn't move quickly through that. If I was by myself, yes, I would have, but I'm not by myself. And you have to remember that. That actually sparked a memory, Jordy, um, and, and really kind of changed my approach to uh, ski guiding in larger groups. I was working uh, in Revelstoke, actually running the cat ski program. And there's one run there um, in Kokanee Bowl. And so it's, you know, you're, you're not skiing that right after the storm you got to wait a little bit stability's got to be good and then when you get there it's not like a line everybody up and ski down the run you're trying to manage the exposure you're going one at a time through there um you know all these things and when we're going through the morning meeting talking about the terrain you know that comes up for that particular run like how do we feel about the stability um is it worth you know considering should we gather some more information before we head there and we'd kind of gone through all that process and decided, yeah, we can go up there. We'll manage it one at a time and minimize our exposure. It'll be great skiing and the guests will have an awesome time. But what ended up happening is we got there. The first five people skied down. The sixth person skied down and tweaked their knee. And so now they're mid-run with a tweaked knee. I've got, I have a tail guide that's above and two other guests that are above. And the train's big enough that it's like, well, we're just all going to stop. 
kind of think about this. Uh, so we managed to have the guests kind of ski down another line. The tail guide comes in from the side. So as Jordy was saying, now I've got two people there. They realize that, okay, I'm not actually going to be able to get this person out of there. We need more help. So they're parked. Ski patrol comes in with a toboggan from the side. So now they didn't have to come down the run. So they didn't have to, you know, ski the steeper train above. They came in from the side. But now I've got four people parked on this slope. We spent 45 minutes there. And at the end of the day, I get back, you know, I'm kind of going through the, the discussion with the tail guide and the other guides. And I'm like, when we were when we were discussing this run this morning, the possibility of having four people on a toboggan mid-slope on this thing never even crossed my mind. And so now when I'm stepping into a bigger train or I'm considering bigger train as, as an option, I quickly read the, the availability bias comes in right away and like pops into my mind. I remember that time when you're staring up the slope at those four people and the toboggan? Do you feel that good about the terrain that you're heading? Because that could happen again. And if it does, you need to be good with that. And I think for me, I think it's for the best, but I tend to go a bit slower now. I kind of, you know, the dance kind of moving into steeper terrain or bigger slopes for me happens a lot slower. And, and like I was saying earlier, rather than, you know, very small data points, I want a lot of different information. And if it's bigger terrain and I just watch a cornice drop, that's my favorite, like cornice drops, nothing happens. Okay. I feel really good. So I think that's, for me, that's one of the things that, that jumps out uh, quite clearly, just like thinking about how much time are we going to spend here and what happens, like the what if question, what happens if somebody gets hurt? How are you going to manage that? I mean, it's, it's a really excellent point because often if I use a, a teaching skiing and snowboarding uh, reference, and it can apply a bit to mountain biking too, but often your time period during the day where you are probably the best set up to go exploring is in the afternoon after you've improved somebody's skills enough to get them to go and do something that they may not be able to have done before. And so then you have this difficult decision of, okay, where should I take them? What should I do? And inevitably what I find is if you pick an option that starts taking you a lot more time than you thought it was, it's because the people are way less efficient than you thought they were going to be, which means that they're burning through their energy a lot faster. And then all of a sudden you're going slower. People are less happy and it just sort of perpetuates. And then all of a sudden you're in a position where, oh my God, I really shouldn't have done that. Like I should have picked a simpler option because at the end of the day, people aren't going to be that happy. And it's a little bit of that motivational bias too, of trying to deliver that epic experience when maybe something a little bit easier would have and, and uh, less complicated would have uh, made people a lot happier. But again, that planning fallacy, we all know people that are late all the time, right? They show up late every single time. And I'm sure if you, if you ask them how long tasks were going to take, they would consistently tell you that they were going to take way less time than they actually do because they fail to consider all of the extra little pieces um, that, that go into it. Yeah, I agree. What kinds of strategies can we use to recognize the bias factors that we might be the most prone to? You know, I think probably the first step is to just accept that they exist, right? Um, acknowledge that they do exist. 
And I think to become aware of your own personal biases, you know, it might be hard to do a self-reflection, but certainly um, peer discussion, the people that you're traveling with, kind of talking about a day in the mountains, whether it's skiing or biking or kayaking or whatever, talking about that day, what were some of the key decisions we made? How did we end up in those decisions? You know, really trying to dig deep into your own thought process and align it with other people. And that, that can only really happen if there's honest communication and there's a, you know, a clear pathway for honest communication. If that doesn't exist, then, you know, it becomes impossible. Um, but I think it's a fundamental part of going out into the mountains, whether you're working as a guide, whether you're an experienced recreationalist, making sure that you have that initial discussion with people and then taking the time at the end of a day to kind of go over, you know, how the day went. And, you know, you might get feedback that, Hey, you know, we got to this point here and I thought the decision was, you know, very focused on this one thing that we did. And, you know, for me, I wasn't too comfortable with it. Maybe that kind of points the finger at a personal trait that you might have, you know, being overly reliant on a single piece of information or confirmation bias. I think the first step is just acknowledging that they're there. The sex, the next step is, creating open communication, you know, before, during, and after the time that you're spending in the mountains, in these wild places and being open to feedback too. I think we also have to be pretty open to changing our plan or our plan A and sometimes our plan B. And sometimes we're mm -hmm. under plan C and D and we're still changing our plan. And a lot of that seems to come from nowadays, the, the pure busyness that we see out there. And recognizing that, you know, maybe you're going to be skiing in an area in an area or climbing in an area or biking in an area. And you can you can almost always now expect that you're going to see other people and quite often in places where you wouldn't expect to see them previously. And so, you know, Mike talking about, you know, you're you're in Kokini Bowl there, which I, I know fairly well. And the reality is you've got people that are there, you know, tied up with a toboggan and an injury. And then there's always someone who could just drop in on top of you that you're, you're actually not really in a true remote backcountry setting there. And even when you are in these mm -hmm. true remote backcountry settings, you can be out heli ski guiding nowadays and you come around the corner or you're skiing down a run and all of a sudden there's a group of snowmobilers there because they're they're going all these places and they're allowed to be there and it's fine for them to be there but yeah it's it can be yeah very challenging in these you know you, you get to the base of a climb and there's there's a lineup what are you going to do now well you don't even need to go that far out i mean ski areas are a lot busier than they used to be and the equipment that people have is allowing them to access snow conditions and places that you wouldn't have normally seen them. Fatter skis allow people to get away with a lot more than they used to be. And so absolutely people are kind of popping up in, in different places in greater numbers going faster. Um, mountain biking, same thing with, with better bikes, right? The, um, there's a couple of things that, that kind of came to mind as I was listening to you. You know, one thing I find super helpful is um, you touched on it, Mike, is being open to advice and, and talking with your colleagues. Obviously, you can talk to the people you're with, but sometimes people will see things that, that you don't necessarily see or come up with options that 
you might have ignored. And then the other one that I can get caught up in, and I'm sure other guides are the same, is sometimes we're a little bit resistant to sort of step away from the situation and, and process things. Um, if you're if you're running, especially a larger group in a complex situation, you can get caught up with being buried with all of this information coming at you and trying to entertain people and keep everybody organized and that sort of thing. And that can cause you, I find, to ignore or miss pieces of information. I was in a, um, riding the chair on Whistler uh, a couple of years ago with a group and we had, you know, gotten this great discussion on the way up and the guy said, Hey, where should we go now? And I'm thinking, well, it's two o'clock. We probably go up the peak chair and do a run, you know, last run down from the top. They're pretty good skiers should be fine. Done a lot of days together. So I don't think there's gonna be a lot of surprises there. And I get off and I start skating across. And as soon as I left the group, I had a chance to stop and think a little bit. And I'm like, Hey, hang on. The snow was really soft today, and I noticed on one of the aspects coming off the peak chair that it got super mowgly by 11 o'clock in the morning. So the run that I pictured that we would do is a nice cruising run when it's hard snow, but now it's going to be a mogul fest all the way down. And I've got two guys that hate moguls, and it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You know what? That's actually a terrible idea. But because I was caught up talking and entertaining everybody, I'd kind of forgotten about the two weaker members of the group and the fact that conditions were not what I had expected. And so I think it's really important sometimes for us just to sort of step out and step away from the group and give ourselves a little bit of time so we can sort of process uh, everything. Yeah, I think that's super important. And, and you know, in your example, you're, you're moving around, uh, in a ski area. If we look at, you know, maybe like an Alpine climbing example where there's a bit more time pressure, you know, because you're trying, maybe you're trying to stay ahead of the rising temperatures or whatever. How do you like work that into your day? And really, I think the key, um, is to take time, you know, the day before to like map this out, like map it out. What does it look like? What are some of the key you know, decision-making areas, when, when is going to be a time where maybe things are coming at you so fast that you really do need to take a moment to process it, identifying an area to actually do that in where it's going to be safe and say, we're going to, I'm going to try and work our day plan or work the timing so that that pause or that moment to stop and reestablish and, and reconnect with what's going on also lines up with the yeah, it's like an hour and a half of activity so let's have something to eat and then you can actually give yourself some more time to process that information and i think humility needs to play into it too right because you could get there you process everything and like you said chris you realize you're wrong and now you have to go uh into plan b or you know talk to the group if you're guiding or talk to your friends if you're out recreationally um, in the mountains and say, look, I think we got this wrong. And, uh, this is why I think we got this wrong and we need to kind of move on with our, our plan B option. Yeah, totally. That's awesome. Do you have any other advice or examples that you want to share that can help our listeners become better at managing bias factors in their decision-making? I think, you know, when I was reading through the, the question list, I think this one, I, uh, I really see being able to kind of map this process out or if you haven't taken the time to, to sit down and kind of map it out, you know, really starting with 
what does the overall goal look like? And making sure that that is on or kind of in alignment with everybody else's overall goal. And if it's not, you have to kind of find the happy medium there. And then the other thing that we have to consider is, you know, if I'm climbing or skiing or whatever with Jordy, say, uh, Jordy might have a different uh, risk tolerance than me. So we, we need to have that communication too. Like what, what is an acceptable, acceptable level of risk for Jordy? What is an acceptable level of risk? How do they meet? And that'll help kind of define a risk band or, you know, a kind of a set of parameters that we can function in. And then, you know, we've kind of got that stuff identified. Hopefully we have an overall goal that's reasonable. We've got some options that we've created too. So if we get, you know, halfway in or, you know, part of the way into a trip, and we see that things aren't working out, it's really easy for us to go to that plan B or that plan C option. We know that the discussion we've had with the plan B's and C's kind of is within everybody's accepted risk tolerance. And then realizing too, when we're out in the mountains, that maintaining situational awareness, so the big picture of what's going on with the conditions, what's going on with the group, that's really hard to do as one person. But it's, it becomes easier to do if we involve everybody in it. And to involve anybody and to involve everybody in it means that we have to take the time to acknowledge that that's necessary. So working that into the plan. And uh, yeah, it's, that's not just about what's going on with the conditions too. It's about what's going on with the group. And you might recognize too, that maybe there's somebody in the group that's a bit more quiet or is not willing to, to share an opinion. That shouldn't be something that, um, you know, is, looked at in a negative light it should be something that's like hey you know do you have thoughts on this it's it's okay this is an open environment you know whatever your thoughts are please share them and encouraging that dialogue to happen maybe it'll bring out some of those other things that maybe are being missed by people that are more driven right um i think acknowledging some of the key biases uh especially when we're um planning our trips months in advance you know, that whole motivational bias thing, right? It's like, Chris, we're going to go ski touring on January 6th and 7th. Those are my two days off that I have. And we, everything's kind of building towards using those two dates. We get out there and we realize, you know, the conditions aren't that great. If we've taken the time to say, you know what? Our motivations coming into this trip need to be driven by one. You know, we want to get out in the mountains and have fun. Two, we want to stay safe. And then three, if the conditions are good, we want to, you know, ski some some great stuff not we're going out skiing january 6th and 7th and we're going to ski the the herdman couloir or whatever it is right so i think really and that that goes back i think to the whole creating a realistic overall goal or taking some time to frame what that overall goal is the uh acknowledging too that uh, there are going to be days that are more complex than others and trying to figure out what some of those key decision points are, like where where are things likely to to change, or where might environmental change or or group changes have an impact on the overall day, and then taking the time to just check in with everybody. How are we doing? Are we still on track? Are we still meeting that criteria that we outlined, um, you know, in our in our introductory processes in that planning process? The uh, the other thing that we can think about too is our experience. I think if I am just doing something for the first time, 
before the podcast, we were talking about kiteboarding. I can remember learning how to kiteboard for the first time. And there's so much stuff going on. You, like a big yellow boat could have, you know, drove right past in front of me. And, and you, you could have asked me at the end of the day, what color was the boat? And I would have said, what boat? Right. So things like removing those kind of blind spots. So, you know, gaining experience and safer terrain, maybe go out and uh, experience a little discomfort in the mountains safely so that you're not letting that kind of affect your decisions. Um, and, you know, at, at times go and exercise the plan B, right? So things are maybe stacking up and things aren't, sorry, things aren't adding up in your favor, you know, be able to pivot and exercise that plan B and, and, and work on creating those lists and having those lists communicated with all the folks that you're with so that when it happens, everybody else is like, oh, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. You know, we talked about this. Yeah, the winds were ramped up this morning. We kind of saw the warning signs, you know, five minutes before we had this discussion, I was already on the same page. So I think all those things um, are, are, are some thoughts to consider. I think that's probably a bit of a long list. <laughs> I think one other thing that we could add uh, to that is uh, have, whether you're doing this recreationally, professionally, have systems, create systems, rely on some systems, uh, even things like equipment lists. I, I don't know how many times I've gotten into the mode of, okay, we're just going out and I don't actually initiate the discussion about what, what does everybody have for equipment? And then you get to trailheads, you get to the basic climbs, you get kind of, you know, to the point of no return and you realize, I thought you had the rope. No, no, I, no, I don't have the rope. You know, those, those kind of things that just puts a, puts a big hole in your day or ends yeah. your day before it even starts or, if you're if you're say scrambling up something, but there's going to be a rappel on the other side, you need to make sure that you have your equipment with you. Another classic one is leaving a lodge, a ski touring lodge, you know, a hut or a tent camp, and you go down to start your day. You need to physically make sure everybody has their skins so they can climb back up to get back up to camp. Right. And it's it's these simple, simple things of of going through this sort of ritualistic checking and and uh, equipment lists and and having a, some sort of a meeting plan, you know, whether it's recreational, professional, where it's like, OK, we're going to talk about these things in this order. We're going to do that all the time this way. And then you're less prone to missing things that are going to mess with your day or your safety or your timing. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Cool. Well, we'll let you go here uh, for this uh, this episode. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. This has been excellent. Yeah, thank you guys. When Mike is not working for the ACMG and the training and assessment program, Mike specializes in providing custom outdoor adventures to small groups. If you have an idea for a cool trip, you can shoot Mike an email at ms. Adolf at gmail.com. You can also find Mike on Instagram at Mike at COE. Additionally, you can visit the website viaferratacanada.com to learn more about the two Via Ferratas Mike has constructed in the David Thompson Corridor. We have put all of these links in the show notes. So, Jordy, what came to mind as you listened to this interview? Well, Chris, where to start? Lots of great discussion today. 
I think Mike touched on a number of the factors that can compromise our judgment. These include cognitive biases, personal preferences and motivations, fatigue, time pressure, which can lead to rushing, our attitude, inexperience, lack of skill, positive and negative experiences, expectations, setting objectives, and the list goes on. When we break down human factors, they tend to fall into three categories, cognitive biases, internal factors, and external factors. Some common cognitive biases that we touched on include confirmation bias, motivational bias, time fallacy, and halo effect. There are many others including sunk cost fallacy and course correction bias. Internal factors include being complacent, being distracted, being fatigued, being affected by our pride or ego, rushing, and being inexperienced. Some external factors include conflict with others, feeling disrespected by others, feeling pressure from people we are leading to do a specific task, and feeling pressure because conditions are changing. Those are all great points, Jordy. Some of the strategies that Mike touched on that we can use to manage human factors include identifying what human factors affect you. So for example, are you more prone to certain types of pressure, cognitive biases, or motivations? So one bias I have to worry about is that I have a fear of letting people down. I think this is quite common with a lot of the people in the adventure industry. That means that if I am not careful, I can prioritize service to others ahead of safety for myself. Another strategy is to use reflection before, during, and afterwards. This helps us to collect information, make sure we aren't missing things, and it gives us an opportunity to, to debrief discussions so that we can spot human factors that may have been present. This is how we can learn and become better. As Will Gad mentioned in our previous episode, this is where we can do a post-mortem of the event. Another one is stepping away to give yourself space to think. And of course, being humble. There is actually a bias for people that don't think that they can be biased. It's called bias blind spot. We're all human and even the most aware of us can be affected by human factors. Accepting that this can happen to you is an important step in protecting your judgment from any adverse effects that might come from bias, internal and external factors. Well, thanks, Chris. Those are great points. As we go through this season, we'll take a closer look at some of the more common bias factors that can influence us. We would like to thank you for joining us. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your local social network. Growing a podcast audience is no easy task. With your help spreading the word to those you know who could benefit, can help to make this project sustainable so we can keep bringing you more episodes. Thanks for listening and take care.